super excited to introduce Mr. Dave McClure. He's the engineer, <laughs> marketer. He was what? Engineer, marketer, uh, greedy investor, all in one. <laughs> right? As, uh, a pirate as well. Has worked for, helped run Founders Fund, has helped run Facebook Fund, has um, invested and consulted in over 100 companies. Uh, SlideShare, Twilio, Twitter, tons and tons, Mint.com. Not, not Twitter, just friends with those guys. Friends with those guys? <laughs> and then, then consult with us? All right. I wish. That would be great. So with that, one more time, let's welcome Dave McClure. So Dave, awesome to have you here. Thank you. You got tons of gadgets? Yeah, I just like to have my gadgets. It's kind of awesome. a security blanket. All right. Um, so I'd like to kind of start with... Uh, with the bio, and I'll kind of talk through the bio, and sure. we'll, we'll get into um, your experience. I just want everybody to be on the same page as okay. where Dave is coming from, right? So you came out from John Hopkins University, right? Came yep. out here about 20 years about ago or so? 20 years ago, 1989. And then you were a programmer, so you worked in a software development type of role? Yep, I was a programmer and database developer for probably the first uh, five or six years. Uh, had trouble keeping a job, so kind of bounced around from uh, people that I didn't want to work for until I finally worked for myself. <laughs> um, started a small consulting company. Right, and, and you uh, worked for Netscape, Microsoft. We did some consulting work, yeah, for Netscape and for Microsoft. You got acquired? Uh, we got acquired. I wouldn't say it was a huge deal. It was sort of like my first business, but it worked out all right, I guess. Um, but I, I probably learned a lot of lessons about what not to do more than what to do. Um, but I think that was my first... It was my first legal business anyway. I probably yes. ran a few other ones that weren't legal before that. Oh, nice. Um, no comment. <laughs> <laughs> so that was 98? Uh, that was, yeah, 94 through 98 or so. And then I okay. stayed with the uh, acquiring company for about another year and a half or so. And then got excited about dot-com bubble? Yeah, I was trying to jump back in. Worked for a couple different uh, startups, uh, some that were kind of bootstrapped, some were venture-backed. Uh, gotcha. Ended up at uh, PayPal in 2001. That was, was pretty early. There were still like 200 uh, people. I wasn't like the first guy in the door, but yeah, it was about 200 people. Um, before IPO? Uh, be just before IPO, which was nice. nice. Um, but um, after the uh, What's your Russians were, sto were, were stealing money from PayPal, I guess, or uh, from our customers. <laughs> <laughs> what? So, uh, well, there's a period of time when PayPal was still working out the uh, business model and... Uh, I guess they had had a series of times when certain folks in Eastern Europe and beyond were uh, getting money out of the company through a variety of means, but okay. they, they figured out how to stop that from happening. So your role there was director of marketing, but you gave yourself yeah. a different role. Yeah, that, I wasn't sure that title really was had any street cred. Because you're an engineer, so. <laughs> right? <laughs> so I changed that to director of geek marketing. I, I was mostly doing uh, evangelism and, and education on PayPal. Uh, E-commerce okay. products for developers and uh, designers and oh. people who weren't developers but were trying to make money. I wasn't sure what geek evangelism. What really, that really meant? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> it's just something to uh, you know take the edge off being in marketing. I think you know when you start out in engineering, you don't trust people in marketing and sales. So right. I, I've gradually come around to that world now that I am yeah. am in marketing and sales. I, I totally relate. Yeah, so. I, I used to be an engineer, not a marketer. Yeah. So. Those evil salespeople. <laughs> So uh, Sean Parker pulled you into Founders Fund? Yes, on, the then... infamous Mr. Parker. Uh, I'd been trying to work on setting up my own uh, venture fund in, 90, uh, in 2008. And of course, my timing was impeccable, right, uh, as the market was shitting on itself. 
I was uh, <laughs> trying to set up a venture capital fund. Um, and I, I, Sean had been trying to recruit me in to help with marketing, and I would sort of said no a couple times. And then I kind of came crawling back and said, hey, you still got that gig? And uh, he was kind enough to give me a shot. I, th I think I was probably the only person hired in venture capital. I'm beeping. Uh, the only person hired in venture capital in December or November of 2008. Uh, but they gave me a shot and gave me a little bit of money to sort of invest and play around with, which was really um, pretty cool. And uh, so I started, I, I've been doing angel investing when I left PayPal, uh, put about maybe 300,000 into 12 or 13 companies, uh, about you know small checks, but I didn't really understand the real estate market, so I figured I'd probably invest in companies that was less crazy than putting money in the real estate market, which turned out to be a good decision, I think. Um, so then Facebook, Facebook uh, right? And Facebook. yeah, then I was, I was at Founders Fund running their early stage program, which was called FF Angel. Right. Um, and uh, we, were, we did about 21 investments, um, about 100,000 each over a period of a year or so. I uh, asked if I could take over the Facebook uh, Fund program and ran that for the summer of 2009. We did about uh, 22, 22 investments. Those were maybe a little bit smaller, about 30 dollars $40,000 each. So then you said, finally raise your fund. The timing <laughs> was right. And, I, I, uh, I hope so. We'll see. Uh, so yeah, we got, uh, we got 500 startups off the ground last summer. Right. Uh, I've been working on it. I guess uh, you know, Founders Fund was kind enough to help us get started with that. They're uh, one, of our, one of our investors, along with a few other funds and folks in the Valley. Um, and uh, I'm not sure why I'm beeping. Some folks are sending texts or something. So yeah, the, um, but uh, really, I don't know. It's been uh, it's been a hell of a journey. I think you know, raising money, learning how to run a fund, Whoop. dropping devices all over the place. Um, but uh, you know, we we were trying to pursue a strategy of doing a lot of little investments, and that's kind of the basic philosophy of the fund. Um, I think if you Kind of look at major changes in the tech industry, at least for consumer and small business internet services. The, the two large changes, you know, about 10 years ago, real really significant drop in production costs based on not having to pay for, you know, hardware, software, and bandwidth. Uh, at least you don't really pay very much for that these days. Um, so that that really started reducing the cost for startups to get off the ground, where previously might have needed three to five million dollars to pay for, you know bunch of Sun hardware, right. or Oracle software, right. and big pipes. Nowadays, most of that stuff is open source software, pay as you go in the cloud. And then the second big change really was um, you know, a sort of dramatic increase in access to customers and online platforms. So not just Google and other you know, search platforms, but you know, starting maybe five or six years ago with, with Facebook and then Twitter, uh, and now more recently with Apple and Android, and you might throw in you know, LinkedIn and YouTube and a few others there. Um, but there's probably six, between five to maybe seven or eight major platforms for customer acquisition that are hundreds of millions of users or more. And um, so that's really reduced cost and increased uh, access to customers. So those, those two things, really big decrease in product development costs, uh, really increased access to customers. Um, those kind of change, in our opinion, the you know, dynamics for investing. Question on 500 startups. Yeah. How is it different than, say, SV Angel? I had Ron Conway here last month. Sure. We talked a lot about his investing strategy, right. how his firm operates, decision-making. Right. How is 500 startups different then? Um, so uh, I 
think the world of Ron, and although occasionally in the press he is uh, not always uh, <laughs> given us as maybe. Uh, <laughs> anyway, I don't need to get into that. Uh, we've done a lot of investments with Ron. Ron's invested in several of companies that I've worked at as well as uh, invested in. Um, you know, I think we both ascribe to the philosophy of doing uh, a large number of investments, so that part is similar. Uh, what's different, um, I guess, so we are both a seed fund and an incubator. So we run an accelerator incubator program. We have companies, about half of our portfolio investments, or at least half of them going forward now, are uh, physically located with us. So we, we do about uh, between 25 to 30 companies every four months. Uh, right now the batch is a little bit larger than that. We have 34 companies in the current batch. Um, so that's different. Um, I think... Probably difference in sort of what types of uh, mentorship or guidance we offer. I think, you know, Ron's really great at connecting people with downstream investors and, you know, really has a Rolodex that's pretty much unparalleled in the industry. Um, the, the two problems that we sort of wanted to go after, you know, from my experience as an engineer and from working with other people is, you know, usually the hardest things for engineers are not necessarily building product, but understanding design and usability issues or finding people who can do that. And then trying to come up with a customer acquisition strategy or a way to get you know customers. So the the two things that we really tried to emphasize was how can we help you know mostly engineering-based founders connect with designers uh, as you know other team members or founders uh, work with them on you know usability. Um, so Enrique here, Alan actually uh, was in the class I taught at Stanford on Facebook apps and also helped me run the Facebook uh, Fund program for 2009. Uh, he's put together uh, something called the Design Fund, uh, Designer Fund, and also helped us uh, put together a network of designers and uh, folks to help with usability testing. Uh, so we found that's really useful for um, at least the software engineering type of founder who's getting off the ground. And then emphasizing primarily online distribution, but generally all kinds of customer acquisition, how do you help founders understand not just building a great product and making it usable, but really growing the customer base and thinking about you know cost of uh, customer acquisition and revenue generated. So since we're talking about Ron, I gotta ask this question, right? <laughs> AngelGate 2010. There's lots of press that came out, right? Michael Ayrton wrote that article on, yes. on on the meeting, the famous meeting. Collusion, price fixing. Saw your article. We are just saw, bad, bad people. <laughs> we're just evil. Saw um. your article. Saw your uh, article about 10 f bombs in it. What uh, what do you have to say about that? Was there, it's not, it wasn't, nothing was going on, right? Or uh, No, that's not true. I mean, obviously we were there to talk about something. Uh, the question yeah. was whether the things we were talking about were evil or criminal, which I basically denied uh, okay. and still deny, and whether we were there to kind of like think about how do we make, you know, the overall industry better? How can we like figure out how to improve things for entrepreneurs? I think, you know, Mike took a relatively negative perspective on that shit. Uh, and I vehemently dis disagreed with him. I think he went to print without any commentary from me, which I, you know, would have gone on record and actually did go on my own blog to, you know, state what I thought occurred. Um, you know, but, okay. yeah, you know, talk to 10 different people who get 10 different perspectives about what went on that evening. Uh, we were not in any hidden room. We were in an area that was quite visible to other people, uh, you know. I didn't invite my mom. I didn't invite Mike, and sorry, sorry, you know. Like, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm not going to tell the press exactly what I'm thinking about for investment strategy, but you know, okay. doesn't mean we were doing anything evil or illegal. And 
Well, I had you know, to. Whatever. I had to get that off my chest. I had to yes. ask that. <laughs> Since you're here. All right, coming back yep. to 500 startups. So we talked a little bit about how it's different from. You know, the other... dark side of the force is so much more interesting. <laughs> it is. It is, isn't it? So let's talk about failures, right? And sure. 500 startups. Let's talk first of all about some numbers, right? How many companies do you invest in? How many of them actually fail? How many succeed? How many return your money? Uh, okay, so let, let's try and define some of those terms a little bit. Failure is like pretty binary, but I think there's a range of outcomes. So companies can, one, run out of money, two, not return capital for a while. They can return capital at small scale. They can return capital at large scale. Those would probably be the areas I would talk about. Okay. Um, so a lot of companies run out of money. Uh, I would guess that probably in our overall portfolio, it's still pretty young, but our, our expectations that probably anywhere from, you know, 50% to 75% of companies run out of money without having any material outcome um, for us uh, or for themselves. Um, I would probably guess there's another 25% that, um, you know, are operating, but, you know, not clear whether they're going to make a lot of money in the long run. And then maybe somewhere between 5 to 20% of portfolio that we think will make some money. In other words, they'll get acquired, they might go IPO, although I think that's not that likely. Uh, or we might find another way to sell our ownership stake that would generate some return for our investors. Uh, and in general, the model that we've laid out is about 5% of those stories are wins that are north of $100 million, and maybe 10 to 15% are wins that are south of $100 million. Um, so that's kind of the trajectory I think we're looking at. Probably it's like, you know, around 50% to 70% run out of money, another 20 to 30% don't run out of money but don't ever get to major outcomes. Maybe 10 or 15% result in some money that would probably be between like a $5 million to $50 million, maybe up to $100 million acquisition. And then maybe 5% of overall portfolio result in a mint size outcome okay. that's north of $100 million, but probably not quite at the billion dollar exits that most venture capitalists So let's have. dig into the people that are running out of money. What's going on there? Is it because they didn't raise enough? Is it talent issues? Is it the strategies um, in there? Usually it's just because they built something that people don't want. Okay. So to, <laughs> to use Paul Graham's parlance, you know, make, make something people need and, or want. And I have always kind of modified that to say, make something that people will pay for which is a stronger indication of need. So then how do you figure out if they're building something that people want when they're pitching it to you? Um, well, we try and de-risk on product side as much as possible and on business model as much as possible. So, you know, although we are a very early investor, we don't very often invest in napkin business concepts. We like to see prototypes, at least of some sort. And, you know, it actually is not that expensive you know, either in time or money to put together basic prototypes for most of the things that we're seeing these days. Um, there's, there's definitely a few areas where there's much more intensive IP, but for a lot of consumer and small business uh, problems and services, the, the basic framework of what people are interested in can probably be built in, you know, between weeks to months, uh, usually on sweat equity. So that initial prototype, most of the times we're investing in something where there's at least a rough outline of what's being built. Um, and we particularly like to focus on, you know, simple business models, either, you know, transactional uh, subscription or maybe lead gen or affiliate if it's indirect. So we, we don't typically go after a lot of uh, advertising-driven models, um, which usually require scale. 
Uh, we don't typically invest in a lot of companies that are growth for growth's sake without uh, business model concepts. We, we do a little bit of that. Uh, but a much more common thing is somebody's got a consumer commerce story, uh, small business, you know, monthly subscription story, or maybe a lead gen or, or affiliate model where you're qualifying customer profile data and then offering that to a third party in exchange for some value or service. Can you give an example of a company that has run out of money or has failed in any one of those ways? Uh, and like tons. What, yeah. <laughs> um, that, that you were well, related I don't, to. I don't want to really like name any particular okay. folks, but like, yeah, well, there's lots of... But talk about the, the problems that they were facing and the issues and how you tried to help them or not. Or <laughs> well, I mean, so, you know, case in point just this morning, without naming names, there was a company that we funded. Uh, we put in about 100000 I think they raised like five hundred to 700000 overall. Uh, this was in probably Q4 of last year or early Q1. Uh, they were targeting a small business segment. Uh, they were offering some services around text and uh, mobile areas. And, you know, they found the initial model had some interest but wasn't monetizing as well as they thought. The customer acquisition costs were much higher. Uh, training and educating small businesses was, you know, more expensive than they thought. And so the overall business model, you know, was a little bit upside down in terms of customer acquisition cost versus revenue generated. Uh, as a result of that, they tried two different iterations of product, one in, I think, uh, February or March, one in... Uh, April or May, decided that wasn't working and basically pivoted into a different model. Um, and we'll see if that works or not. They may may be able to do it. They may not be able to do it. So how do you, when you when somebody comes to you and pitches an idea, how do you kind of look forward and see if something like this is going to happen or not? There's different methodologies yeah. people use. Ashton Kutcher, right, talked about, at Startup School, talked about the fact that an entrepreneur needs to solve a problem despite yeah. how much money they're going to get from it. If they don't earn a cent from it at all, they need to just solve the problem. And those are the types of people you want to target versus the people that say, I want to be like Pincus, Zuckerberg. I want to build a $1 billion company, right? I, uh, don't yeah. invest into those kind of guys. Invest in people that just want to, and even use Carl Fisher as, uh, as an example there. And what, right. is that something that you can relate to? I don't, or I don't do think Zuck guys... started out thinking, I want to build a billion-dollar company. I think Zuck started out with, I want to get laid. And... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> trying to build, a, which was which is a problem for many. For oh, many yeah. uh, he solved the problem, geeks. right? He's, he solved a very real problem. Uh, well, anyway. Problem solved. Um, <laughs> so I I think you know wh whether or not it's a problem or a strong desire. I think we like to focus on uh, entrepreneurs who have a customer in mind. So you know I think. A lot of times you might get the problem wrong, you might get the solution wrong, but if, you're, if your customer is, you know, moms with kids, you know, zero to three, there's a range of problems and challenges that, you know, uh, parents have with new kids. And, you know, working on that set of problems, it's sort of easy to move around within that circle and try and identify what you're working on. Whereas, like, if you start out with, I've got this great video compression technology and, you know, I need to go find a customer for that, now it might take you a while to figure out how to, how to define that. And you might have a much more defensible you know, IP area. You might have a lot of great PhDs, but that's, that's just typically not how we're going after problem solving um, or funding entrepreneurs. So we, we like to focus on relatively capital efficient businesses, somewhat you know, clear customer focus, and usually there's a problem definition where we kind of understand, okay, if you help me 
find a great nanny for my kid, there's probably a pain point there and a, a certain amount of money that is relatively obvious. Um, so if you solve that problem, we think you know, there's a pretty good opportunity to go after more of those customers and scale that up. So that's, that's more just our philosophy as a small investor. There's, there's other philosophies to go after. Um, but it kind of de-risks a couple of things for us that we think are important when we don't have huge amounts of capital uh, to throw at you know, entrepreneurs. Is there a company you wished you invested in? And, uh, oh, shit, yeah. Um, you didn't? Jesus. I, I knew the Living Social founders when they were four guys. Uh, Travis Kalanick and, and Garrett pitched me on uh, uh, Uber like multiple times. Yeah. And, uh, and I was an idiot for not doing that, although Travis wasn't running the company at the time. So I, I sort of keep saying, if I knew you were going to become CEO, I would have put money in. Um, what <laughs> else did I fuck people. up? Uh, I don't know. I, I you know, knew the Airbnb guys. I, I was sort of thrown off by the cereal box shit, and that's sort of like, <laughs> I was like, that's kind of weird, but, you know, they're great. Um, so can you go in now, and well, after they raise a, a round, can you go in and say, hey, I, I want in, guys. <laughs> <laughs> can I? Well, yeah, um, you can. You know, try and do that, and occasionally we have you know done something like that. I think that that's more likely for larger, more well-respected investors than I to be able to pull that off. Um, I think our new strategy is when we totally fuck up on something, and like you see them really successful, was we try and get them to invest in our funds. So actually, that's been our new strategy. I got wow. got one of the living social guys to put some money in with us, but. Um, you know, I I think it's very common that you're going to miss you know big things and you know part of our fundamental philosophy with 500 startups is that we're not that smart uh, and that uh, there's just I think there's a myth of pre-investment due diligence and stock picking that um, you know most most investors think they're awesome at finding and selecting great companies before anybody else does. And, you know, it's easy to sort of, like, in hindsight, say, oh, I was awesome about finding Mint, or I was awesome about finding Twilio or SlideShare. But usually when you make those investments, with Mint, I was pretty sure there was a really, you know, amazing opportunity. Aaron was a tremendous, you know, guy. And same thing with Jeff Lawson at Twilio. But a lot of those, I don't think you're anywhere near as sure when you make the investment and as you are a year later. So... You know, I think the historical model for venture is uh, they write big checks after a significant amount of due diligence, which might be as much as like three or four weeks of meetings. Um, and um, I generally think that you're a lot more aware of your investment decision six to 12 months after you've made it than three to four weeks before you've made it. And so the, the philosophy of sort of writing a big ass check after you've done a lot of due diligence, which might be, you know, 20 to 40 hours uh, of, of meetings. Uh, maybe in some cases they've known the entrepreneur for a while, but I, I think I kind of find that, you know, ass backwards. I think our general philosophy is we're not sure, and particularly with early stage investments, there's just not much to go on other than looking at the product, maybe a little bit of customer usage. And so we generally, you know, try and simplify for do you, you know, do you have good engineering skills? Have you been able to build a product? Is there a customer in mind? Is the revenue model simple? Do you have, you know, decent, you know, team structure? Okay, great. We'll write a small check. And then we'll wait three to six months, maybe up to 12 months, and see if you make progress on either, you know, users or retention or, 
uh, revenue or other conversion metrics. And if it looks like you're making progress, we'll probably write you another check, assuming that you're interested in raising more capital. You ever steer them like towards something that you think they should be doing? Like, don't add yeah. that many features. What are you doing? Oh, well, I mean, I, I generally I have lots of opinions, but you know. What happens when you you go out there and state your opinions? Do they um, take you know, them? They, they sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. I mean, I okay. I think I've developed a reputation for being an investor who has some sensibility around product or marketing, but I think that's probably overstated. I think you know, the best the best entrepreneurs are the ones that probably do well just by leaving them alone. Right. Um, I think for the incubation program that we're running, you know, we, we think there's you know, this period probably between three to 12 months early on the life cycle of the company where there's several milestones that you're trying to de-risk. One is getting the you know, product and customer you know, fit reasonably close, which is you know, here's a customer with some type of problem or desire. Here's a product that solves that in some way, and that fits, hopefully. Um, if you get that right, we think that's an interesting milestone. Uh, hopefully, at that point, the customer comes back and uses the product more. Maybe they tell other people about it. Uh, hopefully, they pay you for it. Um, you know, another milestone is really tuning user experience in a way that allows people to either understand the product better or, you know, use it longer or reach their goal better. Um, we think that matters a lot, and so that's why we emphasize design. Uh, a lot with the team structure. You guys have a whole staff over there, right? Designers. Uh, I wish we had more. So we we have had designers on staff, and we have a lot of designers uh, as mentors and volunteers. How does, how does that work? I got a team, my my people, like two or three people, and we can like go and ask these designers yeah. that service everybody. Well, usually we do uh, for the companies that are coming in uh, on our accelerator program, and sometimes for us the portfolio, we do design reviews. Usually when they first come in the door. Uh, and that's probably about an hour or two session to just kind of take a look at the product, look at workflow, try to understand what's going on and what the user goals and business goals are, and if there's a you know sort of rational framework for that. Uh, and you know we're not always better than the team, but a lot of times we have maybe had more you know expertise or experience around that part of the process. Um, and then the last step of that is usually you know trying to figure out scalable model for customer acquisition, and and really you know. I don't think we worry too much about the problem and engineering component of that. Hopefully we're like, okay, here's the customer definition. The problem is relatively obvious, and we think you can write basic enough code to solve that problem. Um, and sure, I'm sure there's efforts in sort of diving into you know, code walkthroughs and other you know, pair programming and other things that will help improve that process. But usually the larger, more critical path issues are do you have a designer on staff and does the workflow like work? For the right. user, right. Um, you know, do you get activation? Do you get retention? Those are kind of the initial core issues. Uh, if you get to that, if you get past that set, then it's like, how do you scale that up? And you know, are you paying less for customer acquisition than you're generating on a revenue basis? And then, if we can get past that, getting them to some, you know, downstream investor who sees that promise and is willing to help put in more money, uh, unless they've already gotten to profitability. So, you know, the way we tend to think about it as kind of product market revenue. Somewhere in that product is the engineering design process and the market piece is how do you scale that up to people and the revenue side is how do you have a sustainable business and a profitable business uh, so that if you grow more customers it generates more, more profit. Um, and so simplifying it to that sort of framework, you know, there's, there's sort of like you know, stepping stone points where, okay, we've solved one of these at least at some level and we're willing to, you know, either put a higher valuation on the company, put more money in, hopefully other people are as well. Uh, and there's plenty of people who don't 
get past those points. And that's, that's usually where you know, either the company doesn't find you know, users or customers for the product, or they can't you know, get a design or usability model that makes it easier for people to understand. They thought they made something people wanted, and it turned out that. And it turns out they didn't, or they didn't you know, find it meaningful enough. Uh, or the other part of it is really just understanding competitive market. So you may solve a problem, but if there's other people who are also solving the problem, uh, perhaps better than you, or you're not solving it better enough than them, that may be more challenging. Uh, on the flip side, if you solve a problem in a really crappy minimalist way, but there's nobody else out there solving that problem, often you can charge a lot of money for a relatively crappy product, but that you know solves the problem in a much better way than other uh, available alternatives. Well, I'd like to open it up to, to folks. We got about 10 minutes or so of questions. Go ahead. Right. So the question was visa issues yeah. with startups. So un unfortunately, I think the U.S. government and or really the U.S. voters uh, are, do not have a very informed opinion about uh, immigrant entrepreneurship and job creation. Uh, we've, I've spent a little bit of time working with Brad Feld and uh, Shervin Peshaver and Eric Rees on Startup Visa Project. And uh, Brad's really done some great work, and we've gotten some movement on that in uh, Congress. Uh, there's been at least some bills that are proposed, and actually the administration has reinterpreted existing legislation, so it's a little bit better now. Um, we've, uh, we've funded a lot of international companies, so probably out of the 220 or 230 or so, we funded uh, about 30 of them are officially outside the country um, in terms of incorporation. Uh, a, a larger number are also you know, uh, international founders who happen to be here under U.S. subsidiary. Um, so it, it varies by country to country. Uh, for our incubator program right now, we have about 12 or 13 of the 34 companies that come from other geographies. Uh, we've been able to work around most of those issues, but we did have a team last time from the Netherlands that was having trouble. They did get in most of the team members this time. Um, it's much harder for you know, certain countries like India and Philippines and others than it is for you know, maybe Canada or other places. Um, so I don't know. I mean, it's, there's no easy solution there. We're trying to change the uh, structure around EB-5 and introduce this EB-6 classification. Um, if you're able to you know, bring in at least $250,000 worth of capital and or create five jobs in a period of time, we're trying to make that the bar. Um, but there's different, uh, different views on that. And you know, if you make the limits too easy, there's a lot of folks in Congress who think that's going to open the doors to all sorts of people are going to steal jobs, and so it's a very difficult uh, process to get, you know, moving forward. Um, that said, I think you know, entrepreneurs by nature tend to solve problems, and so people who are determined more often than not will find a way around that. Um, if we don't solve that, then you know, the jobs will move to other places. I mean, I think you're seeing already. There's a lot of folks, particularly in uh, China and India. Uh, possibly in Brazil now, who are staying at home or returning back to those geographies if they've been educated here, uh, because there are great opportunities in those countries, and we're we actually do agree with that, and we're investing in those countries as well. So, uh, question uh, about startup act. Yeah, the startup this app. is crowdsourcing fundraising uh, up to a hundred thousand or something it's like two that. Million. Up to two million. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously Kickstarter has already been successful in helping get a lot of businesses off the ground, and you know, having additional sources of capital is probably a good thing. It might put more pressure on us as investors to make sure that we're adding value. So, you know, but we already suck in a lot of ways, so we got to like uh, improve that overall anyway. Yeah. 
the biggest hurdle at Mint.com, financial regulations. Right. Um, so I did a little bit of work. I was there for about uh, one or two days a week for the first six months of like 2007. Aaron was just getting off the ground. There was about three or four, uh, five people at the time. Um, biggest challenges. Um, you know, getting the relationship in place with Yodely was a big challenge, uh, trying to negotiate the term. Yodely is a, an account aggregation service for um, managing uh, bank accounts uh, and people's credit card financial information. Um, so that, you know, getting that, uh, Anton was the primary person working on that. Uh, Anton Kamasaris was the guy running BizDev who was negotiating that relationship. Um, I, I don't, well, I mean, that was a very specific uh, arrangement. I, at the time, I think Yodely didn't really know how big an opportunity was there. And so we, we got a reasonable deal in place um, for, you know, access to their services for our customers. Um, I think working on the UI and you know Jason Petorti in particular with Aaron, coming up with a different look and feel. Like you know, there were other services. Yodely itself had a native service for doing account aggregation, which which I I had been a user of since like 2001 or two, um, but it was different look and feel, different level of trust and understanding with uh, kind of UI that that Jason uh, worked on to put on top of that. Um, you know, I think the biggest issue was kind of a more subtle one. I think a lot of investors who were skeptical about Mint initially um, thought that asking people for their account password information was just never going to fly as a business, and they were very negative and skeptical on the business at the time. I think because I'd worked at PayPal, um, I at least had some insight into the world of people who cared less about that particular item than they did about convenience issues and you know, saving money. And I, I always, you know, said, you know, don't worry about the people who aren't going to give you their password. They're never going to be customers anyway. Worry about the people who are trying to save money or trying to organize their finances. You know, their need may overcome the concerns about security. Um, so I think understanding the customer framework and which customers to go after and not getting caught up too much in, you know, sort of absolutes about customers. Like, it's not the case that all customers care about security equally. Um, so segmenting into you know, people who absolutely care about security a lot and will never give you their password, people who are fuzzy on it and might do it for certain needs, and then people who are like, I got to save money, I got to pay rent, like fuck the security issues, I don't have any money anyway, right? Like so, you know, understanding that that's your customer base and and focusing on them and not worrying about the others, or at least you know that you know flexible framework between security and other customer needs and not having it be this you know. Absolute. That's you know set in stone. Attributes you enjoy seeing in the that's, team. Uh, attributes you want to avoid them. Great most. question. Actually, I hate it when people say "great question" because usually it's not. Um, but <laughs> actually, that is a great question. Uh, so I think it's probably you know overstated, but the hacker hustler designer combo is the one that we like to see a lot. So that's uh, one or more engineers, usually a half head to a full head on design, uh, and usability is part of that if possible. Uh, and then somebody that's customer focused, and that's usually not a traditional marketing person. Usually, that's someone who's more analytically driven around customer acquisition techniques, and may even be, you know, a shared head on the engineering or product or design side. Um, but uh, that that framework generally works out to someone who's technically sophisticated, who can build, you know, write code and build stuff, uh, whether that's front end or back end. Uh, someone who can de- design things, and that does not mean pretty. 
it means converting. Uh, so whatever your target goals or actions are, uh, if it's pretty and that works, that's great. If it's ugly and that works, that's also great. And so a lot of times, people who come from traditional uh, print and other design schools tend to focus on what their, their perspective of the, of the aesthetic is, not what the numbers are telling them in terms of you know, customer usage. So we really try and look for designers who are not prima donnas and actually look at numbers and think holistically about that process and also try and think dynamically about design, not statically. Statically, that's probably terrible. Um, but you know, have some concept of programmatic ability to change the UX over time. Um, so I've worked with designers who are pain in the ass, and like that's really frustrating as shit. Like I, you know, can't tell you how painful it is to work with designers who think they know. I mean, maybe they do know better. I don't know, but like you know. I don't really want to argue with you. I want to like look at numbers and look at customer use case and figure out what's working, and whether you think it's awesomely pretty or not. Like, what's the use? I think it was very clear with like a lot of stuff at eBay that shittier design actually converted better. Um, probably, probably because you know customers in, from the eBay world who are usually there to save money, if it looked too pretty, they probably felt it was too expensive, right? So there's sort of this alignment around the house looking a little disheveled that made them feel like it was a better value. Uh, at least that's my intuition on that. So, you know, so that's really important, not just that you have a designer, but somebody who's you know, usability focused and conversion focused and can work with product and can work with the programmer to kind of come up with those concepts. Um, and then on the marketing customer acquisition side, like this one's the hardest to define because the you know, the ground is moving so fast and changing so fast. I think, you know, channels for customer acquisition, whether they're offline or online, are so vast and changing so frequently. And you want somebody who's creative and, and coming up with campaigns, but also, you know, humble and looking at the numbers and trying to figure out these scalable, you know, ways to go after customers. And then looking at the timing of cost and revenue so that, it, you know, it's a feasible structure. Um, but those are, you know, sort of the roles. I mean, I think as you get a little bit further, you know, in the maturity of the company, customer support and operations become more of an issue also. Um, but initially, where we're really trying to get, you know, past the don't die scenario, usually it's, you know, building a product that customers want enough to pay for, figuring out usability so that they actually use it, um, and then trying to figure out ways to scale that up uh, to customers. Uh, we got question. one more question, Tim, for one more. Over there. For referral base? Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm interested in this. What, so what's the difference? That's what I've been reading. So you, your, your perspective is the YC brand is what? Uh, sort of open application okay. for new companies for how they're trying to find people. Oh, oh right. For, uh, yeah. I'm why right. Why right. So, uh, so we don't have an application process, at least not right now. Uh, you have to pretty much come through a referral from either one of our existing founders or mentors or... Uh, please don't fucking bum rush me at the end of this. Um, yeah, so I I think if we get better at it, we might go to an application process at some point in the future. It'll probably still be referral based through a mentor or references. Um, the reason is just because we get plenty of deal flow that's already qualified, and my my history on that adding adding another ninety percent, you know 
or really like 900% more applications in order to get 10% more actual, the, the return on that investment or of effort is usually not worth it in our opinion. Now, we haven't found a Dropbox or you know, an Airbnb yet, so I might be like clueless as shit on that. Um, but it, it requires a lot more effort to manage an open application process and saying no gracefully uh, and giving people a reason why you reject them is often part of what I think is important about maintaining a brand. And so if you open up this application process and you don't tell them why you rejected, they tend to think you're an asshole. Um, I, I think you know, we've found a lot of great companies through our existing <coughs> folks. Um, I also think it like, drives a different process. You know? So I, I have tremendous respect for Paul, and I think you know, a lot of... A lot of the process right now has been through Harge and Paul and other folks there like filtering and selecting, and they, they obviously have done a great job. Um, in our world, we've tended to try and build more of an open sourced community for that, so a lot more of our decision process is coming through an extended network of mentors and, and folks that are referring. Um, and I, and I kind of like that. I feel like that's a model that works well for us. When we have at least one or two, particularly if we have two or three or more mentors or founders who said, yeah, I think these guys are like know what they're doing or I've spent time with them or even in a few cases I put money into them, it makes our decision process very easy. Um, on, a, on the other hand, lightweight referrals where you're like, hey, somebody just introduces someone and we don't, they don't really know them that well. We've, we've tried to you know, lock down on that a lot. So we, you know, we always tell our existing mentors and founders is, you know, when you refer a company to us, we want you to refer them because you would put time or money into them yourself. And that tends to clarify signal to us. Uh, it also makes our decision process a lot easier. So if they're willing to say, hey, I'm an advisor and put time into this company, or I put even just 5,000 into the company, it makes it a lot easier for us to decide, OK, well, we'll do that too. All right. Well, we're out of time, but I'd like to thank Dave for an awesome talk.